Hi and welcome to Saberism's Malicious Life. I'm Ran Levy. In May 1990, officials from several law enforcement agencies gathered in Phoenix, Arizona to announce a nationwide crackdown on illegal computer activity. A huge operation carried out by hundreds of Secret Service and FBI agents in over 12 major cities. They presented to the nation a sweeping, successful move against a new kind of criminal, hackers. As one official put it, it was time America realized that computer-based crimes are no joke. Quote, it's not a game. They are attempting and getting into credit cards. They're getting into telephone systems, medical records, credit records. They're getting into everything. End quote. Gary M. Jenkins, the sitting assistant director of the U.S. Secret Service, was one of the architects of the raid. He didn't mince words either, announcing, quote, Today, the Secret Service is sending a clear message to those computer hackers who have decided to violate the laws of this nation in the mistaken belief that they can successfully avoid detection by hiding behind the relative anonymity of their computer terminals. End quote. What a marvelous triumph for the rule of law against devious criminals. Or rather, that was the narrative promoted by the U.S. government. But in fact, things were not exactly as they seemed. Operation Sun Devil turned out to be a very controversial action by the government, and its effects are still being felt today. We cannot understand Operation Sun Devil without first understanding bulletin board systems, BBSs for short. BBSs were computer servers allowing users to share information and files and exchange messages in public chat rooms. If this sounds not too different from our modern internet, it's because bulletin board systems were indeed the immediate precursors of the World Wide Web, and they dominated the community of computer enthusiasts during much of the 1980s, filling the same function as a primitive pre-internet. They were generally text-based, operated mostly by computer hobbyists and usually dedicated to a specific subject, such as computer hardware or telecommunications. The first bulletin boards use acoustic couplers to convey information between servers and clients. Acoustic couplers were devices that converted electronic signals into acoustic sounds, which were then sent over the telephone system. This was achieved by placing a standard telephone headset into a specially designed cradle in which a loudspeaker played sounds into the handset and a microphone would pick up the sounds coming from the opposite end of the line. As can be expected, this type of communication was extremely slow, only some 1,200 bits of information per second at best. Next came dial-up internet connections, which still converted the digital signals into analog audio waves, but did so without the awkward cradle and handset contraption, but by directly connecting the computer terminal to the telephone line itself. This improved transfer speeds significantly, first to 2400 bits per second, and then to 9600 bits per second. 
while still being considered extremely slow by today's standards, dial-up modems allowed computer enthusiasts to remotely exchange information more efficiently than ever before and greatly helped the spread of bulletin boards. Yet the most significant constraint on bulletin board systems wasn't necessarily the information bandwidth, but the financial one. All these communications were taking place over commercial telephone lines, often across state lines and even international borders, and long-distance calls were very expensive back then, up to several dollars per minute. This meant that the hobbyists who operated the bulletin boards, some of them were even miners still living with their parents, often wrecked up hefty monthly telephone bills. These financial pressures, coupled with a deep interest in computers and telecommunications, drove some of the operators and users of these boards to explore the option of manipulating the telephone system. This was nothing new, of course. Freaking, a combination of the words phone and freak, was a well-known scene in the 1970s. The freakers, as they were called, manipulated the telephone system by reverse engineering the specific set of tones used to control the operation of the network. A well-known example of this was the 2600 Hz tone, a dial tone which signaled the telephone switch to initiate a long-distance call. A freaker named John Draper famously found out that a plastic whistle, given out as a prize in Captain Crunch cereal boxes, could create this specific frequency, and so a simple Captain Crunch whistle could make you the king of long-distance calls. As telephone companies upgraded their systems in the early 1980s, these simple tricks died out, but the spirit of freaking lived on. Several freakers started to use computer and software to build more elaborate schemes and try to gather information about the inner workings of telephone companies and their systems. They were still known as freakers, but today we'd call them hackers. It was, in fact, the phenomena of freaking which gave birth to the very first hackers. In 1989, a hacker using the handle Profit hacked into the computers of telecommunications company Bell South. Profit was browsing through the company's systems, looking at different files, and then laid eyes on the ultimate prize. It was a document with an exceptionally boring title. Bell South Control Office Administration of Enhanced 911 Services for Special Services and Major Account Centers, usually shortened to E911. It was a comprehensive guide for the National Emergency Telephone System of the United States. After getting copied by Profit, this document, a helpful resource for many in the freaking community, was published on an e-zine called FRAC, operating through a special bulletin board. Quickly, thousands of copies of the file were spread all across the United States. When Bell South found out about the hack in 1989 and informed the authorities, many law enforcement officials had enough. The rise in criminal hacking and freaking activity distressed telephone companies, which put pressure on the U.S. government to act. 
Additionally, the U.S. government started to learn more about hacking and freaking, with many officials fearing a new type of criminal activity they did not understand. They could tolerate freaking in the civilian sphere, but they couldn't let hackers and freakers meddle with 911 numbers. Some people in the government feared that people would hack into 911 emergency numbers, damage the good efforts of law enforcement agents, hinder the ability to effectively respond to emergencies, and even endanger lives. And so, E911 became the casus belli of Operation Sun Devil, named after the Sun Devil football stadium of Arizona State University, located just next to the local Secret Service headquarters. 150 Secret Service agents, accompanied by various squads of local police, raided houses where suspected criminal activity took place. Very few arrests happened during the operation, since government agents weren't looking for criminals, but for computers. 42 computers and 23,000 floppy disks were taken into police custody, leading to 25 different bulletin boards going dark at once. Many different hacking and freaking tools, as well as illegal information, fell into the Secret Service's hands. The attack surface has never been larger or more diverse, yet defenders are still forced to piece together intelligence from numerous siloed solutions that produce a flood of alerts in order to detect and end complex malicious operations. No more. Defenders can now leverage AI-driven Cyberism XDR powered by Google Chronicle to predict, understand, and end sophisticated attacks with the only solution on the market that delivers planetary-scale protection that allows them to predict attacker behavior through a revolutionary, operation-centric detection and response approach. Cyberism and Google Cloud are dedicated to teaming with defenders to end cyber attacks from endpoints to the enterprise to everywhere. Learn more about Cyberism XDR powered by Google Chronicle at cyberism.com slash platform slash XDR. Operation Sun Devil got a lot of media attention. The press conference announcing the raids was reported across the nation and signaled to the general public that the government was finally taking the necessary actions to stop this new and threatening crime. But as time went by, more and more news organizations started reporting on the meager yields of Operation Sundival. By 1992, two years after the raid, only two hackers were charged as a result of the operation. Other cases were outright dismissed. As time went by, Operation Sun Devil seemed less and less like a real action against criminal activity and more and more a mere public relations stunt. It seems that the US government wanted to convey a stern message to hackers and freakers. Beware of crossing the red line between an innocent hobby and a bona fide crime. 
And indeed, the raids did have a significant psychological effect on many hackers. Up until that point, most computer crimes went unpunished, and even the rare cases that did end up in court culminated in suspended sentences or community service. In that sense, Operation Sun Devil came out of the blue. An activity that was considered as recreational suddenly became a priority for federal law enforcement agencies. Word quickly spread through bulletin boards, and many hackers feared they'd be among the next targets. But there was another, less expected outcome to the operation. After all, as Newton said, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And the equal and opposite reaction to Operation Sun Devil was the birth of a new power in the cybersphere, the EFF. The massive crackdown against hackers and freakers across the United States drew the ire of several computer hobbyists, civil liberty activists, and Silicon Valley businessmen. One of them, David Sobel of a group called Computer Professionals for Social Responsibility, said the following to the New Scientist magazine in 1992. Quote, There was little justification for many of the raids. The government confiscated equipment that had nothing to do with any crimes. Law enforcement officials sometimes overstate the dangers posed by hackers, who are often teenagers engaging in electronic vandalism rather than systematic fraud. End quote. Three activists enraged by the raids, entrepreneur Mitch Kapoor, civil rights activist John Gilmore, and John Perry Barlow, a poet and an occasional lyricist for the Grateful Dead, founded in July 1990 an organization called the Electronic Frontier Foundation. The group was also helped by Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. The Electronic Frontier Foundation was a new civil rights organization aimed at civil issues raised by ascendant technologies. It was not created as a legal defense fund for hackers and to this day is still not interested in helping scammers or malevolent criminals. Instead, the EFF wished to protect people when their digital rights were curtailed by the government for no legal reason. The EFF's first major case was that of Steve Jackson Games. An unlikely protagonist of the crackdown, Steve Jackson Games is a game publishing company based in Austin, Texas. The company was targeted in a government raid searching for the E911 document, and during the raid, all of its electronic equipment was taken into police custody. Despite the fact that no copies of the E911 document were found on the company's computers, all of the content of the company's bulletin board was purposefully deleted by government agents. As a result of that, and of the prolonged period of time the company's computers were held by authorities, Steve Jackson Games suffered significant financial losses. The EFF took part in the trial as an amicus curiae, Latin for friend of the court. It assisted the court, really Steve Jackson Games, with relevant information and insight. Aided by the EFF, Steve Jackson Games sued the Secret Service and asked for damages. 
After a successful legal fight, the company was awarded $50,000 in damages and $250 in attorney's fees, while the judge on the case reprimanded the Secret Service and its actions during and after the raid. The second major case for the EFF was the trial of Craig Nydorf, a.k.a. Night Lightning. Nydorf, then only 21, was the editor of FRAC, the e-zine where the E911 document was first published. After the raid, Nydorf was arrested and charged, facing a maximum sentence of 31 years in jail. His trial was known as United States vs. Riggs, named for his co-defendant, Robert Riggs, more famously known as Prophet, the hacker who stole the E911 file in the first place. Riggs pleaded guilty and agreed to serve 21 months in prison for the hack of Bell South's computers. Early during the trial, authorities and Bell South tried to make the case that the E911 document was a highly dangerous file. They claimed that it was worth many thousands of dollars and that if the document fell into the wrong hands, it could wreak unspeakable havoc. In fact, the prosecution claimed that the E911 document was so dangerous that it shouldn't even be revealed to the members of the jury in Nydorf's trial. According to the prosecution, Nydorf was guilty of publishing a dangerous weapon online and endangering lives. But then, the defense managed to bring one crucial piece of evidence into the light. They revealed that Bell South itself was selling copies of a very similar document containing even more information as the E911 file for $13. Look at it carefully and tell me if it doesn't contain about twice as much detailed information about the E911 system of Bell South than appeared anywhere in FRAC, said Nydorf's lawyer. If E911 was so dangerous, why was Bell South selling it to anyone with $13 to spare? And that was it. Four days after the trial began, the charges against Craig Nydorf were dropped, and he was once again a free man. The cases of Steve Jackson Games and Craig Nydorf were the two most important legal battles deriving from the crackdown of hackers and freakers. Despite the declarations of law enforcement officials after the Sun Devil raids, both cases ended with defeats for the U.S. government, and no significant progress was made as a result of the raids. But was the government wrong when it cracked down on activities hurting telecommunication businesses? Not necessarily. Sometimes the line between an amateur hobbyist playing with a Captain Crunch whistle and a malicious hacker inflicting pain and damage on innocent victims can be very thin. While the US government was wrong to target Steve Jackson Games and Craig Nadorf, Operation Sun Devil did help to steer the public's attention towards the rising threat of online crime. 
and as bulletin board systems gave way to our modern internet, hacking and malicious cyber activity did eventually grow to become the threat that law officials warned against in the press conference after the operation. Then again, justice is a delicate thing. Justifiable government operation can soon turn into a transgression that hurts innocent people like the owners and workers of Steve Jackson games, while so-called evil criminals like Craig Nadorf can turn out to be much less dangerous than law enforcement initially claimed. Organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation work to protect defendants and prevent government transgressions in cases related to new technologies and the information age. Operation Sun Devil, then, serves to highlight the gray nature of the cyber world. From its birth to this very day, the cybersphere is a labyrinth where it is difficult to navigate between good intentions, malicious activity, and the thousands of shades of gray in between. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And I have a specific reason to be thankful, because a few weeks ago, Malicious Life was ranked ninth in the iTunes technology category charts, the first time we broke into the top 10 in the charts. It's amazing to see our podcast's name alongside wonderful podcasts such as Reply All, TED Radio Hour, and of course, Jack Resider's Darknet Diaries. So... It's especially important for me to thank you, our listeners, for all the love, support, and encouragement you send us. To X64Dev, Vinny Rodriguez, a technical artist, Hello Tweety NYC, who definitely loves Cheetos, and Spectacular, an Italian at heart, who all recommended us to their followers on Twitter, and to at WSFSB, a veteran web developer who wrote about our previous episode about the MITRE attack flow, quote, This was a great listen. Trying to explain it to my boss while we need EDR was easier to tell him to listen to this. End quote. Happy we could be of help, WSFSB. A big thank you to all of you out there. This is also a good opportunity to remind you of our planned live event called Malicious Live, celebrating five years of Malicious Life. It will take place on June 13th, 12 p.m. East Coast, 9 a.m. West Coast, and it will be an online AMA event where I and the team will try to answer all of your questions about the show, about us, the universe, and everything. For example, listener Michael Crook sent us the following question over Twitter. Quote, what is your favorite hack or hacks of all time? Mine has got to be the entire saga behind the Xbox Underground. End quote. Great question. We covered so many hacks in the podcast, it will definitely be a tough choice for me. Good thing I have a month and a half to think about it. So write it down in your calendars. June 13th, 12 p.m. East Coast, 9 a.m. West Coast. 
Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. This episode was produced by Agam Kedem Levy, edited by me and by Nate Nelson, with sound design by Yotam Halachmi. Our website is malicious.life, and you can follow us on Twitter at at maliciouslife, or me at at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Thanks to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. CK Music